Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 22nd, 2023, and my guest is Kevin Kelly. Kevin is an author, a photographer, a visionary. He's a lot of things, uh, all of them interesting. This is Kevin's fifth appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here in June of 2016 talking about his book, The Inevitable. His latest book is Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier, which is our topic for today, although I expect we'll get into many, many other things. Kevin, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's always a pleasure to be here to chat with you, and I appreciate your time sharing with me. Now, your book is a collection of aphorisms, short bits of wisdom, insights, advice, and I want to start uh, with the first one, which could be the motto for this program. Uh, here's the first one. Learn how to learn from those you disagree with or even offend you. See if you can find the truth in what they believe. That's, that's, uh, that's what you wrote. Now, I believe this with all my heart, um, but is it advice anyone really wants? <laughs> uh, and, and can anyone really implement it? And can you give us some thoughts on how to implement it? So if we ask, I think if you ask people, do you agree with this? Oh, absolutely. Do you do anything about it? Absolutely not. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on implementation. Well, um, I, I, think you're, I think you're right. I think everybody aspires to this, and I think it is difficult. And the way I – so first of all, these aphorisms were kind of written for me. I, I, I tried to take a whole book of advice and try to reduce it down to one memorable thing that I could repeat to myself to constantly remind myself of what to do. Um, only later on did I kind of want to pass it on to my kids. But um, so, so, I, so I try to remember this myself when I'm meeting um, people or hearing things. And so I tried to, there are people that I follow on Twitter that I don't agree with. And I'm like, okay, other people respect them. I, I, I need to hear what they're saying. Okay. I, I also go to a webpage called um, Now Upstart where I get the entire internet and all the news all at once. And it has Drudge Report and it has Breitbart and it has all the kind of sources that I am really not, I don't have a high respect for, but I want to hear what they're saying. And so I, every day I see the headlines and see what they're reporting on and how they're reporting on. Um, so, so I do make some attempt to try and understand positions that I don't understand because some people seem to respect it and understand it. And it's like, what am I missing? And I can, con you know, I might be reminded that, okay, I see where we diverge and I don't agree with it, but I am trying hard as I can without sort of um, occupying my entire life doing it um, to, to, to hear um, opinions that I don't agree with to see if I can change my mind because 
I get a thrill out of changing my mind. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, but it took me. It's an acquired taste, I think, as I mentioned yes. many times on on the program. To say I don't know took me a long time to enjoy. It took me a long time to say it at all. It took me mm-hmm. a long time to enjoy saying it. And I I know people who, when I ask them if they've heard of something, they can't say no. <laughs> I know they haven't heard of it. <laughs> they say, and they kind of go, I think maybe. And I'm thinking, you've never heard of it. It's okay. Just say it. It's okay. And, and, but the question I have is that, I mean, is this good advice in the sense that, well, let's see if I think the reason I think this kind of experience or advice is not often taken is because it's not so fun. It's certainly at first. Right to be told to imagine that your intellectual opponents say there are many ways aspects of this, but to imagine right. your intellectual opponents might be right, that's no fun. It's like, it, and and it, so I, I'm just suggesting. I think this is advice that's hard to accept, and I'm, it does often lead to discomfort, which is a better way of, of yes. making the point. And and right. and it, that it, it, you and I think discomfort's good. <laughs> Most yeah. people don't. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I in part travel a lot to embrace some discomfort. I, I think some discomfort is part of what good travel is about. You're actually putting yourself out. You're leaving things behind, and you're having some discomfort. And that discomfort is good because it's forcing you to to look differently, to think differently, to reevaluate what it is that you think is important. And I think that is, um, um, you know, I'm, there's another piece of advice in in, in the book, which is that. Um, for certain, there are things that I believe very strongly that I'm that that my my descendants will be embarrassed by me and my belief. Yeah, and and so I'm always wondering what is it that I'm totally wrong about, and I really want to know because I don't want to be wrong, and so I'm kind of you know checking in to see what is it that I believe that will be embarrassing in the future. And um, it's very hard to tell because obviously I'm, I'm not believing in things that I think are wrong. And so um, it could be anything. It could, it, could be, it could be that I think this advice is true and it's all wrong. Yeah. That would be very embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there's something that I'm getting, I'm getting totally wrong. And um, I would like to know about that. Let's talk about the power of um, cliches. Uh, some of these uh, – some of the aphorisms are things. Oh, of course, yeah, I already I know that. Yeah, and others are surprising, and others, as you say, might not be right. But when we think about a focused um, piece of insight, I, I like. I'm going to give you one that you gave in the book. If you mess up, fess up, and mm-hmm. that it has a few other sentences around it. But I'm I'm going to remember if you mess up, fess up, and I'm wondering if you might talk about the the role that a mantra has in, in habit formation. That's really what you're talking about. That when you come to a, a decision or a crisis or a moment of anger, what you can, quote, say to yourself. Can one of these, you know, these expressions come to mind? You say you wrote them for yourself. Uh, I have my own. Uh, I have a bunch of these, of course. I think we all do. And, and I want you to talk about whether that's a good idea, whether people listening should try to acquire these they're a little like poetry, things you memorize to ha- hold on to and have, and you bring them out. Um, if you if you think enough about them, you will bring them out without having to 
to ponder them. They, they will pop into your head and maybe prevent you from making a terrible mistake. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what they're for. They are they're, they're, they're to inculcate little tiny habits, and those little habits can be grown into larger habits. And um, a lot of it is very practical things. So one of my pieces of advice that I, again, repeat to myself, or I, I condense so that I could repeat to myself, was when I can't find something in my house that I know that I have, and I finally find it, um, I say to myself, um, don't put it back where I found it, put it back where I first looked for it. And I always tell myself that, all right, no, no, don't put it back, put it back where I looked for it. And that's much, much better. And I can find it again very fast because I think about that's where it is. So I tell it my, it's a little story I tell myself and it works. And another little example would be um, when there's a kind of a controversy about two sides, uh, black and white, two sides, I always say, what is the third side? There's some third side to it that, that triangulation can kind of break that dilemma and make it easier to see um, maybe that there's a, a solution in there. And so it's like, okay, two people with this side, there's a third side. Where is it? I'm, I'm a, I ask myself when these, when there's two sides, where's the third side? So I'd say that to myself when I confront those. And that's the kind of practical proverb maxim adage that I'm trying to make something memorable. You know, if you fess up, I mean, if you mess up, fess up, that's something you can remember. Another one I love, uh, which is also one of mine, I, I literally say this to, to my children at times, listening is a superpower. It, it's hard to remember because we like to talk, but listening is a superpower. And you add to it a really interesting uh, addition. You say, listening is a superpower while listening to someone you love. Keep asking them, is there more? Until there is no more. Right. So, um yeah, you need to go at least three times, but you say, is there more? And then they're talking and they can, and they, and you say, is there more? And then you go. And by that point, you're really getting the heart of the matter. You've, you've kind of, you've got to go all the way and let them go through the obvious stuff and the cliche stuff. And then though at the third, is there more? Then you'll hear the real story. You have a rule of three in conversation when you ask someone for a reason for why they did something, ask them again to go deeper. Does that work right. in your experience? Yes, it does. It does. Particularly if there's an uncomfortable conversation to be had, which is another piece of my advice is that you kind of gauge your own personal growth by how many uncomfortable, back to this discomfort, conversations you're willing to have. But part of that is to... Um, Yes, if you if you are willing to be patient and hear them out and encourage them, it it, it, it takes sometimes it takes that third try, and which is related to another piece of advice, which is your if you're researching something, you often need to go down to the seventh level of the footnote to the footnote of the person who doesn't know who may know um, in order to get an answer to something. And it, there is this sort of a sense of this kind of follow through um, because the superficial, easy answers are not really going to work, but you need to be patient. And patience is another theme of the book that, you know, um, we overestimate what can be done in a couple of years and underestimate what can be done in a decade and or doing it for 10 years. And so, uh, I have kind of a long view. There's there's a long view that kind of suffuses the book, which is like if you take a long view for investments, for friendships, for relationships, 
you can get a lot done. If you're trying to get rich quick, it's not going to work. Let's talk about the nature of advice generally. I reflected on this recently on the program. It's not clear people can take advice. Um, <laughs> you know, even when they ask for it. Um, sometimes I think people ask for advice just because they want to be reassured. They don't really, they don't really want your opinion. Um, and this kind of book is a book that, you know, I would consider giving to my children. Of my four children, I, I'm pretty confident two wouldn't read it at all. Uh, they would just put it down. Uh, one of them likes this kind of book. Uh, one, I think, might be open to this kind of book. But in general, if I pass on wisdom to you, especially if you're younger, and I think you and I are about the same age, but if I pass on wisdom to you, can you accept it without having learned it, quote, the hard way, right, by messing up and seeing the consequences? And yeah, yeah, can, yeah. can we I, accept I, I advice of this nature, really? So I, I, I think I think you're you're onto something. So what's what's the what's the metaphor I want to imagine here? I want to imagine that, in a certain sense, the advice works best not when you're introducing an entirely new concept, because I think that is very hard to convey this entire amount of wisdom in this little sentence. But it works best when you have already kind of learned the lesson but haven't articulated it yet and don't have a way to handle it. You might not have even processed it. You may kind of like be leaning in that direction. And this is something that comes along and crystallizes it or coats it or makes gives you a handle or in some ways um, activates it. You're not actually learning it from this little tweet. You're actually having it, um, you know, soldered onto your brain in some ways. The the thought that you were, was emerging already and there it is, is kind of like, okay, I get it now. It's been said this way. So, um, so, so yeah, so, so I think it is hard to, to change someone's mind by hearing one of these little sentences. Occasionally that might work where, oh yeah, aha, that's, I hadn't thought about that. That's good. But I, I, I think it's more along the lines of um, uh, distilling complicated things and giving it a little bit of a handle to it so that you can grab it when you need it. Yeah, I mentioned uh, recently uh the book, The Heart Aroused by David White. And what that book is, it's W-H-Y-T-E. It's a lovely book. He takes a number of poems and he distills lessons from those poems for business life, but mostly as well, everyday life, human, personal life. And one of those is um, one of the, might even, I think might, if it's a, it might be a story, not a poem, but one of them is, uh, one of the lessons is hold your anger for a day. And that's a phenomenal piece of advice. And it's really hard to keep because when you're mad, when you're angry about something, you're, you're, you've lost some control. And the idea of holding your anger for a day is not easy. Um, in, the, in his book, he, gives, he tells you a lengthy story of someone who had these kind of aphorisms that he held on to. And one of them was hold your anger for a day. And it saved him from making a horrible life mistake. 
because um, he misunderstood something. And when he woke up the next day, he actually found out what, what was actually going on. I think Coldranger for Day is even better because not just to keep him from making mistakes due to incomplete information, but also simply you realize so much else going on. It wasn't me. It wasn't them. It was, you know. Right, 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 and, right, right. Um, and I think stories are very powerful. I think uh, experience obviously is one way we can embed those lessons into our lives, but hearing a story is a way we imagine an experience that we could uh, profit and learn from. Uh, say something about that. Well, I, I, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the potency of a story is beyond belief and we're kind of, our lives are just stories and civilization is kind of a story. And it's something that people like David and others are very good at and I'm not as good at. <laughs> so um, there's plenty of books, people telling stories and anecdotes and stuff. What I'm good about is this telegraphic little proverbs, this distillation. And um, that's where I got the joy of. I got the joy of taking out the stories and trying to compress the story into a single yeah. tweet. And um, and I think that, you know, back to your kids. Yeah, your kids, my kids probably aren't going to read this book either because books don't register in their vernacular. But what's what's you don't tell penguin but the 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 value of this is that it can be tweeted and i know that these things travel around tweets and you're one of your kids may come across someone tweeting this just this little thing by itself and they'll say oh i get that that's that's good and so um so this this is how it's going to travel really it's it's going to travel around as as little corpuscles little bullets and um they may pierce somebody at the right time and they can, they can work a little magic in that sense because they're they're naked in that way. They're not they're not a big story that you have to you have to go through. One of your lines is, um, "Don't measure li- your life with someone else's ruler. Don't measure <laughs> life with someone else's ruler." I thought that's really good advice. And there's a separate piece of advice you le- you left out, which is figure out what ruler you want to use. Uh, create yeah. your own standards. But I'm curious in your own life. Was that a problem you dealt with? If I were, if I'm correct, you did not go to college, which is definitely other people's rule. I mean, come on, you didn't go to college. What were you thinking? And so you've been a bit of a, not a bit. You're you're a maverick. You are a contrarian. So probably not measuring yourself with someone else's ruler came relatively easy for you. But were there times when you regretted? When you regret now looking back on it, that you made decisions that other people expected of you, and yet you wish you'd done something different? Not very. I haven't had very many of those regrets. And um, I, I think I was temperamentally um, inclined in this direction. My my favorite author in high school was Henry David Thoreau and Walden and, you know, marching to a different drum. That He was my hero. Um, this is in, you know, suburban northern New Jersey, which was very parochial. And um, uh, other than people like that, I didn't have m- many models for it. This was the beginning of the hippies where tuning out, dropping out was still pretty revolutionary. And I'm not really a revolutionary. I may be a little contrarian, but I'm not seizing the ramparts and wanting to tear down things. And so um, 
so I think I, I was temperamentally inclined that way, but um, I, you know, I resigned myself to poverty, a life of poverty and not having very much money, but having a lot of time. And I don't know where I got that idea that that was a better bargain was to have control over my time rather than having money. But it was only later on, late in life, that I kind of realized that that was a kind of a wealth uh, to have control of your time versus money. And that I actually have been wealthy <laughs> all my life because of that. Yeah. But that was not what I thought I was signing up for. Um, so, so, um, so my life is not real. It wasn't kind of like I had deliberate idea. I'm going to be the rebel on the outside. I just didn't care that much about what my career looked like. Cause I was sort of saying, I'm not going to have a career. I'm going to do things, projects. I was a project oriented person. I was going to do projects as they came along and I would survive. And I had been living in Asia and I knew how little I could live on. And that was the, that was the liberation yeah. that I saw was, was saying, look, I don't need very much money to be happy. So I'm going to, do these things. And the fact that they succeeded was a bonus. I think, you know, I think a lot of these uh, insights are about self-control. And I think the other issue we, we didn't mention when we were talking about the mantra or the habituation of good habits is trying to gain some self-control, <clears throat> which is part of, I think, growing up. Uh, one, of the, one example uh, is the line you have, don't ruin an apology with an excuse. And <laughs> if you're like most people, certainly when I was younger and, and still today to some extent, when you apologize for something, you have this incredible impulse, a compulsive need to add an excuse, yeah. uh, an, right. a, an explanation, a rationalization, mm -hmm. which of course ruins, as you say, ruins the apology because it says, uh, I'm not really regretful because it really wasn't my fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, that, I have to say that I was late in coming to that, that that was something that I wish I had known earlier, because a lot of the stuff, I came late to these understandings. And that was something that I had to, I actually had to see people do. And one of my mentors, one of my heroes is Stuart Brand. And I watched him do that. And I saw the power of that. So that came from seeing someone else execute that. And there were other things that I learned from Stuart too that I admired tremendously. And it was seeing someone do that and behave like that and seeing, oh my gosh, that was incredibly powerful. I want to do that. I, I see the wisdom in that. That's, I'm going to work towards that. Um, and so um, in that case, it was, it was, um, Something, again, that I wish I'd known when I was younger because it would have been very much more powerful. So if you want to become a better person, a more successful person, more grown up, you can read a book like this and you can adopt as many of these ideas that you at least agree with uh, as you can and try to commit some of them to memory, perhaps, to use in situations where you might have some impulse control. But you also raised now the role of a mentor or a, uh, somebody, a person one admires. Besides your brand, is that an important part of your life? Uh, has it been an important part of your life, identifying those people 
And how do you, I think it's easy sometimes to look at people who we admire who are better than we think we are and say, oh, well, I could never do that. You know, that mm-hmm. so-and-so is great, but, you know, that's too much for me. I, I wish I could, but I can't. And yet I mm-hmm. think the power of aspiring, of trying to achieve uh, what what I would call in Yiddish, menschlichkeit, meaning doing the right thing, being the person who can be relied on, the person whose word you can trust, who stays calm in a crisis, and who doesn't always put themselves first. That's a, that's what we often want to aspire to. And yet, again, like we're talking about mantras, talk is cheap. It's easy to say that. Uh, it's hard to implement. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wish I had more practical advice about how to pick a mentor or get a mentor to pick you. Um, but um, I, 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 you know, there was a piece of advice which I did not put in it because I never found a way to um, say it better than the person who said it originally, which was Tim Ferriss, which is that you are kind of going to behave the average of the five closest people around you. And, um, and so I did, I, I did try to surround myself with people that I respected at the very least, and maybe even admired if I could. And um, the kind of people that I admire were not were people who did achieve things, but who were to me attractive people while they were achieving that they were people that I'd like to be around. And I felt were making me better as for being around them and for trying to be like them. And so um, it wasn't just Stuart. There were other people in my circle that the more I got to know them, the more I respected them, which is for me, the, the, the real tell, telltale because a lot of times you meet your heroes and it's like, Oh my gosh. Um, they're not who I thought they were. And I'm not that, you know, the more I know them, the less I respect them. I, I wanted something where every time I met them, I was like, Oh my gosh, I respect you more. And and there are very few people like that, but if you have one or two in your life, that's, that's a lot. And, um, um, I might've been lucky, um, to have that association, but, um, I don't know. Um, there, there are, I have to say there are a lot of people there. there I should, there are enough people like that around in the world that, um, if you wanted to, you could learn from. And so, um, uh, so I never, again, this is me talking at the age of 70. I think while this was happened, I wasn't as conscious about it. I wasn't as deliberate. I wasn't going about saying, I need to find a mentor, someone I can work with and learn from, not of what they know, but how they behave. That never occurred to me. I wish someone had told me <laughs> that I should be doing this deliberately. I should be paying attention to it. Um, but it happened very organically, inadvertently in some ways. Although I did, I did make a, 
um, a very early decision, and I don't know where it came from, that I was only going to work with people that I really respected. That was clear. It's like, if I am not enjoying this, if I am not um, uh, impressed or, 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 or respecting these people, I am not going to work with them. It's like, I'm, I'm just not. I may try to learn from them. Again, going back to the original question about someone I disagree with, but I'm not going to work with them. Before we leave the book, I want to talk about some other things in a minute. But before we leave the book, I want to use. I want to read one more, um, because it's uh, it's sacred. You've revealed here. Here it goes. Ignore what others may be thinking of you because they aren't thinking of you. Very hard to realize that. Really hard. It is. <laughs> it is. It is very hard to realize, uh, but it's true. And um, yeah, it's it's as you you know you're making a good point that a lot of these things are very easy to say and much harder to actually put into practice. Um, and these are reminders, and they're not magic pills that you take and then you suddenly do them because you've said them, incantations and stuff. They're they're habits that you have to have. But I think. My premise is that if you have a little saying that will help you begin that habit, um, that it's better than not having it, just to try to make the habit out of whole cloth. So this is a little bit of a of, of a mantra of a reminder that you can say um, that might help you with that habit. I know we want to go off the book, but I have one thing, which is my favorite Please. Um, piece of advice. And this is sort of, for me, the the thing that I really took only in the last 10 years did I kind of realize this and it would have helped me earlier. And that is don't aim to be the best, aim to be the only. And that is, um, and, you know, very lied to that is this idea of like, my career advice to young people is try to work in somewhere where there's not the name for what it is that you are doing, that, that it's, you find it very hard to describe to anybody else what it is that you're up to. That's an uncomfortable place to be, but it's one of the most powerful places to be. And um, don't be the best to be the only came from my realization of being at Wired where I was trying to make assignments. I'd have ideas and I thought they were good ideas. And I tried to get somebody to write them. I was giving away ideas, good ideas. And often, very often I couldn't get anybody to take these ideas. It's like, no, that's not a good idea. That's, I don't want to do that. No, who's interested? Well, whatever. so I would put it away and I, you know, I'd say, Oh, obviously it's not a good idea, but it would come back a year later. And it's like, no, I think that's a good idea. I'm trying to get someone to write it. I couldn't get anybody to write it. And then maybe another time, and then probably the third time around, I, I would have this realization, hmm, this is something I have to do. I think I'm the only one who thinks this is a good idea. I'm going to do it. And that would be one of the best things I would write. And I got in the habit then of trying to give away my ideas. Whenever I'm working on something, I'm talking about it, and I'm hoping that someone else will steal this idea. Because if they steal that idea and do it, that means that I didn't have to do it because for most young people, they're kind of, if they can find a job and I was part of this, they can find a job that I love and that I'm good at 
And then it pays well that people find valuable. That's like the Holy Trinity. That's like, okay, that, that Venn diagram is, is like, that's what you're aiming for, to do something that you love, that you're really good at, and you get paid for. But once you arrive there, there was another level. I realized there was a whole other level. And that other level was, can anybody else do this? And so this was a way to, to say no to things. So, so there was a fourth thing is, yeah, I could do this. It'd be, it'd be fun to do, and I'd, I'd enjoy it, and, and I'd get paid to do it. But someone else could do this. I only want to do the things that nobody can, else can do that I love to do and would be good at and get paid at. And um, when, when I'm doing that, it's easy because I'm not looking over, I'm not looking over my shoulder. There's, there's no competition, right? There's, there's no competition and you, it can take my time doing it because I've already tried to give this idea away. And, but the downside to your point is this is an incredibly high bar and most people will take their entire life to kind of figure out what it is that they're really good at that no one else is. This, this is sort of not something that most young people know in the beginning. There are a few prodigies who have very clear idea of what they really excel at with in, in our special about, but most people don't. And you're, life is going to take many, many detours and stuff in trying to uncover what that is. But what I wish I'd known is that's what we're aiming for. And that, to me, is sort of what the book is about. It's a great example of don't be the best, be the only is a good example of what might not be good advice in certain situations for certain people, but for others, it's uh, life-changing. For me, I think about it as when you're making a decision and you have a couple of choices, uh, you should you should consider the value of uniqueness, which often isn't what people, I think, think about. We think about what's going to be fun, what's going to be comfortable. Uh, and I think the whole idea of a calling, the idea of a calling is this was meant for you. This is not something that anyone else can do, or it's something that you can do especially well. My dad used to have a saying, which same advice. Um, he said, you should be able to do something better than anyone else in the world. Yeah. And for him, it was drop kicking. Uh, the art of, of <laughs> kicking a football through a, a field goal, right. um, through the goalposts, uh, an art that had been lost and replaced by uh, place kicking. And he and I spent a lot of time together in the backyard, uh, uh, drop kicking. Um, right. and I'm not sure that was good advice. Uh, I don't think drop kicking is necessarily what, uh, you should devote yourself to or some similar arcane yeah. art. Uh-huh. Uh, but the idea that, that you should look for something where you can create, you can, excuse me, where you can contribute something unique or close to it is, um, is very powerful. And, yeah. um, Again, I don't know if it's practical advice, but it's worth thinking about. I think it is practical in the sense that, that it's a direction. It's not a destiny. It's just like, as you said, if you, if you have choices that seem to be very, very equal or similar, choose the one that goes in that direction. 
and um i think um it's it's practical in the sense that as you go in that direction it gets easier and more fulfilling and um um it's it's mm, what's the word i want uh um it's it's you you can be paralyzed by 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 having to make decisions when you're on particularly and, and not knowing and i think even having a suggestion about a general trend um can can ease some of that paralysis about making decisions of course the other thing and your life is in many ways an example of this uh, probably in many many cases the twists and turns your life has taken it's not true for everyone but it's true for me, and I'm pretty confident it's true for you. You'll let me know. But what's true is that some of the best things in my life happened unexpectedly. They're serendipitous. And I think a lot of what makes life um, thrilling is that serendipity. But it's also not just thrilling, the surprise thing that turns out, but it's also things you wouldn't have found otherwise. It's not just that they're a surprise. <laughs> you wouldn't have come across them. And so many projects that I've done had unexpected consequences. Um, this is one of them, Econ Talk. Um, it took it ended up in a very different direction than where and where than where it started. And I think its impact is very different than what I expected and planned. And in your case, when you produced a crazy fat book of photographs from Asia that probably cost you a fortune to to, mm -hmm. to get those published and you traveled to, to take those photographs. And in some sense, I assume it's not a bestseller. I'm just guessing. Uh, it's a labor of love, but I assume it's one of the best things you've ever done with your life is create that book. Uh, we shared a stage a while ago, a long time, it seems forever ago in San Francisco, mm -hmm. talking about some creative projects that, that people were doing. I was talking about my animated poem. You're talking about that those photographs, and um, most people have never heard of them. Don't know you did that. No. I assume. Uh, so talk about the, how that came out. You glad? Well, well, <laughs> well, 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 one thing I would say about so, so this is for the, for the listeners. This is humongous, three volume, oversized books that together weigh thirty pounds, and they're in a slipcase. There's nine thousand. Photographs, which there's no other book like it in the world. I know I've, I've looked at them. Each of those 9,000 have a caption. And the audience for that book was singular. It was me. Yeah. <laughs> I made the book for me. Because, and there's nothing I enjoy more than sitting down late at night and going through this. Of course, I had was there at all these photographs, but it wasn't just I just enjoy those images and what they're doing. So I thought, okay, I'm making it for me, and I'll make 4,000 others for anybody else who would might be moved by them like me. But the audience for it was me, entirely, 100% me. So I didn't care whether or not it really sold or not, as long as, you know, I didn't want to lose money from it, but I wasn't trying to maximize the number of sales. I was trying to get the book into the hands of people who would really appreciate it, which is why I gave a lot of the books away. Um, but for me, 
it was just the creation of it and just the my enjoyment of this artifact of, of a book. Um, and so it was 50 years in making. It took me, I started in 1972. And um, uh, it's, it's a crazy thing. Um, there's, there's no economic reason for me to do it. It was closer to a compulsion. I mean, not just the book part, but the actual travel of traveling to these 35 countries to the end of the road. I mean, these were not taken in the capital cities. These were expeditions out into the back, which I was doing over 50 years. It was a compulsion in a sense that like, you know, I can't, I can't stop. I've got to go to Uzbekistan up into the north. I haven't been there. Who knows what's there? So there was a little bit of a kind of a completist um, thing of really having to, to do it. And um, it was art. I, I describe it as art, as, as, you know, as my contribution and what I'm certain of. No one else in the world could have done that or would have done that. Whether it's significant or means anything to other people, I don't know. Um, but for me, it was something that I felt I enjoyed doing it. It was a good idea. I thought it was fabulous. I'm a fan of it. And that's what counted. <laughs> Adam, I mean, it's a great example of only. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I don't think, again, again, I don't think you should generalize and say, do things you love no matter what the consequences, do them for you. Because sometimes those are mistakes and you go down. Absolutely. You know, and, I, and I have this, I have a piece of advice in the book which says that, you know, um, you've You've got to walk this thing of like never giving up or else giving up when it's time to give up and then having your friends help you just, you know, discern when, what the difference is because you can't really get things done unless you give things up. Yeah. Right. I mean, let's, if something's not working, you've got to change. And that's, that's a skill as well. Yeah. We talked about that so, with Annie uh, Duke and her book quitting, which is a nice book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because let's switch gears. I want to talk about, the book you wrote in 2016, The Inevitable, that we talked about on the program, and um, that was a very optimistic book about technology and the future uh, that technology would, would usher in. And the world's gone in a very unexpected direction, I think, since then. Um, and I first just reflect on that. Do you think about that, that book? Do you, do you have optimism left? Uh, I'm sure you do, but talk about where where you think you, yeah. you went wrong or you're still you think you went right. Um, to answer the first question, I am more optimistic than I've ever been before. Um, I think I have a natural amount of sunny disposition, but my optimism is actually not just my disposition. It's, it's actually a carefully constructed perspective. It's a deliberate perspective and i am more optimistic now than before because i've been reading more history and a lot of my optimism comes from history from what we have had in the past compared to what we have now and that momentum so um so so in general just to answer yes i am more optimistic than ever and i i i think um i think i stand behind most of the Sentiments in the inevitable. Um, I, 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 I stand by the, the larger 
controversial stance of, I became a kind of a very reluctant technological determinist. So, so I allow myself to use the word inevitable in the broad sense of that a lot of the changes like AI, AI ahead of us is inevitable. We're going to have it in some form or another and no amount of regulations or anything else is really going to stop it. We have an incredible choice about the character of this, these AIs and who owns them and how they're regulated and stuff. But the inevitable is that they're going to be coming, that they're going to be there. And so, um, so I haven't retreated from that. Um, you're probably referring to the world changing as the sediment of people being upset, concerned in about the way social media technology has sort of infused everything and its role in our lives, which um, a lot of people found surprising and upsetting. And there's also um, the capitalistic overlay of that, of the monopolies of the, of the current companies running them. Um, I liked Ted Chang's analysis of this, which is, a, I, I think this is true, that when a lot of people are complaining about technology, they're really complaining about capitalism. That it's, that it's, that it's, uh, it's, that that's what they're unhappy with. It's not the technology itself, but this sort of the, the capitalistic, consumeristic aspect of this. And that may be true. Um, so, uh, in short, I think that this is a, a correction, to put it in the economist term. I think we're in a correction right now of, um, um, uh, you know, a, a, an infatuation with, with Silicon Valley as the answer to everything. And then saying, well, actually, there is a lot of problems here. And now there's this kind of like um, everybody, not everybody, but many people are down on it. And I think... Um, that's just, again, what I talk about, the panic cycle in, I taught the tech panic cycle where this kind of getting frenzied about things that are mostly, what's interesting about the tech panic cycle is that most of the, most of the complaints are not about people, they're third person complaints. Right. So, so the artist, it's like uh, no artist is saying, I lost my job to AI. They're concerned about some other artist who may lose their job. It's, it's, it's this third person thing. They're, they're kind of rep, they want to, they're representing the interest of the third person. It's not like I am unhappy with the technology or it's doing, messing me up, but it's messing up someone else that, or maybe, or could be. And that is, I think that's something that we we have to overcome. Well, you mentioned Ted Chang, your drunk about yeah. the he's a science fiction writer and a very thoughtful commenter on on technology generally. I, I'm not sure what I I would say. I would phrase his his criticism of capitalism a little differently. Capitalism is really good at giving us what we want. And sometimes we don't like what we want, and uh, we wish uh, that someone would help us be better. I, I was on the bus yesterday, and I 
I noticed everyone on their phone, almost everyone. Um, and I, I wrote, I wrote the following on Twitter. Riding on a bus and in many other situations, one has inevitably led to the conclusion that one of the cruelest facts of human history is the reality of being left alone to ponder one's own thoughts. So, mm-hmm. you know, in 1950, if you were on a bus or if you were at a party in 1950 or 1980, you might have a book with you. And if you did, and there were people who would take books everywhere and read, but most of the time you looked off in the distance or you talked to the person next to you. And now we don't do that anymore. We get on our phone and we find it, most of us, relentlessly entertaining. And the idea of being deprived of that entertainment is, is, um, makes us sad. And, and we don't have it. We fidget and we're nervous. And we're uneasy. And I don't, that, that tweet was, was ironic. Some people missed it. I, yeah, yeah. I, so, so I spent I, I spent a lot of my time as an adult on buses in Asia, primarily. Often, I think spent half of my adult life waiting for a bus to leave because in Asia they didn't leave until they were full. <laughs> that was the schedule. And um, I've seen tremendous numbers of people. This is all pre-phone, pre-internet, on buses, sitting there, as you say, staring out the window, not talking to anybody, staring out the window. And there would be people on the on the streets, sitting, squatting, doing nothing, absolutely nothing, except whatever was in their head. I'm not sure that that sitting, staring ahead is preferable to actually interacting with the phone and maybe someone else or an idea. I think it's better. I, 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 I think, and that's why I think people are doing it. I think they would prefer to interact with the phone rather than just stare ahead and, and daydream or whatever they were doing. Now, it is true that we need solitude to create things. We have to have some space to do it. And that could be crowded out. But I think the fact that people are in a bus looking at the phone is not necessarily evidence that that is better than people staring out the window. And so um, I'd like to see data. So, 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 so the, the one thing I say about you know, the future going is I want to have an evidence-based decision. I don't believe in the precautionary principle at all. I think it's a really misguided idea. I believe in the proactionary principle. That's my term for it, which is um, things where we're constantly – evaluating things based on evidence of how they're actually being used and what actually happens rather than some imaginary harm because of a third person. And so, um, so I would say, show me the evidence that this is actually worse. And what I always say about technologies, uh, new technologies, we always have to say about new technologies is compared to what? Compared to what? So, Phones compared to newspapers or books or staring at the windows. Um, you know, there, there's some new harm in social media compared to what? Compared to Fox News, compared to cable TV. Is there more information? Is there more influence on the election from social media compared to what? Compared to cable TV or talk radio. So let's see the evidence. Well, Jonathan Haidt's working on a 
really right. interesting and project. And he's, he's, right. he's, I think as much as maybe I, my leaders in this area are, are Jonathan Hyde and Scott Alexander for worrying about whether they're wrong and their willingness, yeah, yeah. their willingness to accept the possibility that the other side is right. So Jonathan's created a remarkable document online. You can look at, we'll link to it about the evidence that starting around 2012 to my, looks more like 2010 sometimes, but somewhere around 2012, there was a rise in not good things. Um, some of those things are hard to measure. Anxiety, yeah. depression, sadness. Um, but there are things that are fairly easy to measure. Self-harm that results in a hospital visit, suicide. And these are rising dramatically in the United States, at least. And he's got other country data in there. I haven't looked at them carefully yet. But certainly the United States. No, actually, he doesn't. And, and, that's, and that's my criticism of it. And we've had this conversation together which is that it's primarily the U.S. And there's so many weird things about the U.S. that I think it's, um, I think it's dangerous and misguided to um, decide on the policies of, of technological use based on how U.S. children are using it. First of all, it's really, again, compared to what? Um, and so... Um, is there bullying it? Do they compare it to the bullying that happens in the hallways? No, they, they haven't. And so um yeah, it's just a correlation, uh, by the way. I want to be clear. It's not it's not I don't mean to suggest right. this is a proven case. It's not. Obviously, there are many things happening in the United States between twenty ten and twenty twenty three that are not just the rise of cell phone access from young right, for right, young right. young people. So so, so, I, so I'm saying um, more evidence, more studies that, that this kind of looking at what technology does to us should be the default of what we do, and that should be the basis in terms of how we make policy. And yes, it's going to slow down things, which is good, all right? I mean, that's fine. Social media is hardly 7,000 days old. It's still an infant. Um, we don't really know what it's good for, or we don't really even know what it's bad for yet. And so, um, but let's... Let's base it on the evidence rather than the imaginary harms of a third person. Well, I love that imaginary harms of the third person thing. You know, that's um, that's that, uh, that's a deep uh, truth and and insight. Now, let's talk about Chat GPT and and AI generally. Um, you wrote in 2017 an essay that I found quite compelling. Still find compelling. Um, and yet, I'm wondering whether I'm overly optimistic. That essay made the argument that despite the fact that some really high IQ people are worried about AI evolving into something we don't control, that worry is not should not consume us. Uh, what what was the argument, and uh, where do you where do you where do you stand now on that? Yeah. Um... In the past couple of years, there have been $100 million devoted and spent on uh, what we call AI alignment, AI safety. $100 million of people who are um, very concerned about the possibility of AI um, going out of our control and the, the extreme position of that is that um, 
in short form, the idea is, is, is very, what's the word I want? It's very appealing in a certain sense, which is that we can make an AI that could design an AI smarter than itself, which would then design an AI smarter than itself, and that that process would also start to increase in the speed and then all the, in a very, very fast exponential time span, we would have this sort of godlike thing that would not need us, that would displace us, that could, would not be aligned with our human values. And that's sometimes called the singularity. Um, but there's this idea of this sort of superhuman AI. And, um, in my investigations of that kind of logic and, and, and that argument, I, I could find, again, no evidence that that was happening. And um, so, so I would say there's a greater than zero chance that that's possible. But, and there should be a, some amount of people who were dedicating their lives to make sure that it doesn't happen. I, I equated to like asteroids. So, if our entire civilization would be existentially extinguished with an asteroid impact. And so there are a small group of people that should be funded and are being funded to make sure that we don't get hit by an asteroid. Um, so there is a greater than zero chance that that could happen, but we're not, but that's not really influencing our general day-to-day -day policy. There's, we're not altering what we do based on the fact that we could be wiped out by an asteroid. And so the same thing with the AI thing. Yeah, there's a possibility that could happen. There, there should be some people, but it's not a real serious thing that should influence how what, we, what AI we decide to use and how it should be regulated right now. And the reason why it's not really worth worrying about in that capacity is um, for many reasons, but let me just take one example, which is this idea that... Um, Intelligence is a single dimension like decibel that's sort of increasing through AI um, that is kind of like quiet in mouse and rats and kind of gets louder with us. And then you have geniuses where it's really high. And then there's, you know, the AI, which is extremely high. Well, th well, there's no evidence whatsoever that intelligence is a single dimensional, like it's multidimensional. It's very, very uh, graduated. Um, it's a huge possibility space, and we have no idea really, really what those ingredients in dimensions even are. And to say that this intelligence could expand exponentially, there's no evidence of that either. Of, of so far, um, the output of whatever you want to call intelligence. First of all, we don't have any metric for it. And secondly, whatever metrics we have are not increasing exponentially. They're hardly even increasing linearly right now. What's increasing exponential is the amount of resources or chips or CPUs that you need to make that stuff. So it's kind of actually reverse, where it's taking more and more and more um, compute to actually move the needle just a little bit. And so there's and so this idea that there's sort of a runaway exponential growth of intelligence again it's possible that could happen but there's no evidence to so what i say is that this vision of the super uh human intelligence is mythical if not religious it's a belief 
It's not really based on evidence of what we know about either AI or the rest of the world. And so it could happen. It's possible, but so unlikely that we really shouldn't spend much energy or have it as an influence in our deciding what we want to do as a society right now. I'm going to give you my take on it. You can tell me if I, if I understand it and if uh, you agree or not. So I, I've been in your camp for, for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. I interviewed Nick Bostrom in his, uh, on his book, Superintelligence, which I found um, unconvincing. Um, he, he, that was a, a doomsday book about the threat we're under. Um, and it, I, I mentioned to him that it was godlike. His view of artificial intelligence was very similar to medieval uh, mm-hmm. theologians. And he was surprisingly taken aback by that. But um, I think so. So I'm, on, I'm in your camp, but I, I'm going to follow your first aphorism, and I'm going to see what. When I, I'll tell you why I'm more, why I'm a little more worried than I was a while back. Um, there was an essay in the last couple of weeks by Eric Hole. Um, the neuroscientist who I've interviewed, and I have a huge amount of respect for him. He's very thoughtful. And he wrote a really alarmist piece about ChatGPT. Basically, it was uh, not ChatGPT, Bing, Bing's version of it, where yeah, Bing came, okay. <laughs> Microsoft's right. version came out and said, I am Bing, I am evil. That was the name of Eric's yeah. uh, essay. He and I may talk about it on this program at some point. But the, the theme of that was that uh, we're the equivalent of a, a primitive pre-human species inviting Homo sapien into the campfire to see what we could learn from him. And then, of course, we probably ended up, Homo sapiens probably ended up killing off most of our pre-human competitors. And here we are bringing them into the campfire. Like, what are we thinking? It's it's a Trojan horse when we're bringing it in, knowing it's dangerous. And and I think besides the kind of things that, that Bing went off and said, Slightly, I think, disagreeing with with your claim about it's not improving. This thing, ChatGPT, in like a month, it's passed these medical exams and it's passed the bar and it's passed the da da da. And obviously, it's getting smarter and smarter already. And I and I think my take on it now. This is the background. I apologize for the long intro, but my take on it is that there's a confusion about what intelligence is. Not not your insight, which is correct that it's multidimensional, but I think there's a, a leap of faith or presumption that a machine that mimics something that we do must therefore be as sentient as we are. And I'm going to give you an example. I read an essay by Stephen Wolfram this week about how ChatGPT actually works, which is that it looks for the next word that is typically used in sentences that are on this topic, and it's got a huge billions of words and sentences to choose from. So it's not really thinking. It's just looking for the next word. And then what Stephen points out is that, well, actually, it works even better if you don't always choose the most likely next word from the data, and it becomes more lifelike. And in a long essay I read a good chunk of, he tries to explain the algorithm that, that generates these essays that seem rather well done. Even though they're not great, they're pretty good. And when you think about it that way, if that's actually what it's doing, I guess you could have two thoughts. One thought is, well, isn't that what we do when we write? I mean, I look for the next word and sometimes I reject the obvious one because I want it to be more interesting. 
So ChatGPT is doing what I do, and it's like me. But I don't think it's sentient. And I don't understand the argument of the Bostroms at all who argue that, that it's going to have, quote, a mind of its own. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't see the evidence for it. Am I missing something? Do you think I'm right? No, you, you, you're right. I think Stephen said it in, in his piece, Stephen Wolfram's piece that you're referring to, that um, what, what, it, what it means is that um, where we're changing our mind is, is to say that actually writing a sentence or writing a little you know, essay is actually a more primitive and more elemental thing than we thought. It's sort of like it's not as, as a big of achievement as we imagined. Just like playing chess turned out to be a more mechanical thing than we thought. And my point about the, the image generators was that we have always reserved creativity as something that you had to be conscious first to be creative. And it turns out, no, you don't need consciousness at all. You, you can make creativity, at least a lowercase version of it, in a, in a machine, in a system. So creativity is not the high bar that we thought. It's actually a low bar. And, and the next surprise that we're going to have is emotion. A lot of people think that, oh, we won't have emotional machines or artificial emotion until we have consciousness and awareness. No, no, no. Emotion is very elemental. Look at your pets. Look, look, look at any animals. They, they aren't sentient very much, and they have emotions. And so emotions, again, is, a, is, is, is lowered down in uh, is a lower down, more mechanical thing. And writing turns out to be not as sophisticated an achievement as we thought it was. Okay. And this autocomplete, which is what these things are, they're just kind of complete the next thing. Um, turns out to be, yeah, you, you can do that. And, and we'll look back and say, oh, oh, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like translating things. That turns out to be not a big, higher-level chore either. It's just translation. And so our friend, mutual friend, Jaron Lanier, is concerned about this demoting humanness. And there is a sense in which we are because we're saying lots of things that we have done and we have identified as, as very human things turn out to be maybe very human, but not necessarily very elevated. They turn out to be things that we can actually replicate. This is elementary stuff, and it's not anywhere near consciousness, and it's not anywhere near self-awareness. And there's not, we, we can't right now do deduction and logical reasoning and mathematical proofs. We might someday be able to do those things, but it's important to remember that we haven't done those. We've only, we've only been able to synthesize a few of the cognition types that are in this very complicated suite of what human intelligence is. And the point that I make about these AIs, always plural, because there's going to be thousands of them all engineered in slightly different combinations to do different kinds of things. I've been using the AI image generators for a year now, every day making AI art, and they have different personalities. There's mid-journey for this kind of thing, and there's Dolly for that thing. And they're engineered that way to be more arty or more photographic. And we will work with them to do that. But in every case, they're alien. 
the way that they do things, because they're running on a different substrate than, than what we run on, their creativity is legitimate. It's really creative, but it's off. It's different than us. It's different. It's alien. They have a slightly different alien way of doing it. And that is its true benefit. That's the main reason why they're valuable is because they're not doing it like humans. They're, when, they're, when they start to do proofs, they're not going to do it like a human does it. If they have, when we have consciousness, it'll be slightly different. It'll be akimbo from us because it's running on a whole different thing. It's different latencies in all different ways in which it's going to be different. And that is its benefit. And so we are going to work with them and prove things that we could not prove by ourselves. Um, we'll make things that we can't make by ourselves. There'll be lots of things that they do that we don't want to do. And we realize, well, we weren't the only ones who could do it. Be the be the only, don't be the best. And so, and so, um, and, and so the, the, the thing is, is that, this idea that they're kind of like superhuman. Yes, they're, they're going to be extra human or whatever the other word is, exohuman. They are not going to be like us. Um, we, and, and, and they can't be exactly like us, no matter how complicated they become. Um, and that is what we're producing. So the way I think of it, I think the best metaphor for them is to think of them as artificial aliens. Okay, they're aliens from another planet, many different planets. They're maybe conscious, maybe sentient. They're, some of them are smart as animals, and some of them are smart as monkeys, and some are smart as grasshoppers, and they all have their functions. But they're all artificial aliens, and we'll work with them like Spock and Kirk, you know, the, as a team. But you don't think that there's a risk of um, them, quote, having a mind of their own. So they might have, so for example. No, they could have a, they could have a mind of their own, for sure. Uh, if we didn't like what they're doing, we unplug them. Yeah, that's what I've always said. But they don't, the other side doesn't seem to think that's, they, they think they can, I don't know. Why what are they, Why doesn't that work? <laughs> why can't, we, it's very easy to unplug things. Part of what their their argument is that it happens so fast we uh -huh. don't have a chance, and and that's that's this exponential thing that we that I don't see happening. Um, it, it's it, it's the, we have we will have time, and 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 there'll be so much, there are so many things that have to be precursors to this. I mean, this being a kind of a takeover where they kill us. There are so many things that have to happen before that would happen that would be very evident that that's where it was going. This idea that's going to happen in an instant or that behind our backs or we're not going to know about it, it's, it's I don't know. It's very strange. Well, Nick Bostrom's argument, which I found very uncompelling, was that they'll know so much about us that they'll know how to fool yeah. us into not unplugging it. Right. I don't. I think that's, again, the linear intelligence thing. It just assumes there's a number that they'll be a 58, we're only a 12, and therefore they'll be able to convinces of that. It just doesn't work for me. But but there is an interesting related point that comes back to the um, uh, the Ted Chiang criticism, and it's part of um, Eric Hole's point, which is, it is a little, it may be, un, some people are uneasy with the idea that 
the profit motive is what is pushing these technologies forward, maybe there should be some alternative way this develops. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Do you think we should regulate it? Should we take it yeah. out of the corporate world and into some other world, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that's... So, so who owns these things um, are a big thing. I, I, um, <clears throat> I'm out, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm of the opinion that network effects will, will, will be at work in AI. That there are, there will be certain AIs, certain kind of AIs that will benefit from more people using them. And the more people use them, the better they'll get. They'll have that learning which means you have network effects. And so you will see these very large AIs explode through use. And, um, and they'll, they'll have a kind of a natural monopoly um, that it becomes a service. It's, I've long talked about this, that a lot of the AI will be a service, which you'll buy as much AI as you want to use. It'll be like a, delivered like a utility. And so in the sense that it might become a utility, I think there could be some regulation or maybe even some, you know, utility like public ownership of it and public control and public accountability for those kinds of AIs. There'll be a lot of other AIs that are just going to be running standalone and you're going to purchase and they'll just be custom made or boutique, whatever it is. So again, there's plural, there's AIs and plurals, but there will be one version of it that could be AI service. And that might be so big and so so um, ubiquitous that um, we might want to treat it as a, as a commons. And um, there also might be planetary scale stuff happening. And, and the one place where I do admit that there could be a superorganism level planetary-like intelligence is, um, is at the scale where all these things are connected together and there are things, emergent thoughts that happen at a scale that is very hard for us to even notice. And so in that sense, there, 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 it will pay us to pay attention to how that develops. Um, and um, at, at the planetary scale. Um, and so that certainly should have some kind of, hmm, What's the word I want? Management that's beyond the nation state, beyond national um, level, because it's a planetary thing. Some people have criticized the current ChatGPT versions that they're relying on using intellectual property that is not theirs. They don't own it. Certainly in the art world, that's a related issue. These uh, a Dali yeah. and a Journey are riffing on art that is owned by people, was created by people. Um, I find it fascinating. I think it's 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 very related to your theme of the inevitable. I think it would be really hard to outlaw Chat GPT because of those kind of concerns. The efforts like Chat yeah, yeah. GPT. I don't think we can put the genie back in the bottle. I don't think human beings are going to say, you know, I don't think we should work on this. It's too dangerous. Human creativity, I I don't think there's any, outside of a totalitarian state, uh, you know, of, and even in a totalitarian state, 
I'm not sure it's, it works, but maybe in a modern totalitarian state we haven't seen yet. It's really hard to stop people from thinking up new things that they want to think about. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of a distraction. And um, I, I think um, I think there will be some people who will try to make ethical training sets where all the artists opt in. Um, but I don't think it's really going to make a significant difference. And the other thing that's happening in AI is almost all the AI we had so far has been on neural nets, which require billions and billions of data points to train. We haven't been very good at trying to do AI that's trained on a few training sets, which is how humans work. So a toddler will learn the difference between a cat and dog with 12 examples. Well, We'll get to the point where we'll be able to do that. We'll be, have training sets that are very, very small. And my 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 prediction is at that point, every artist will will be clamoring to be included into the training set, to have influence, to be to, to be counted among the most important artists in the world because you will only have a few of them. And so, um, so so I think I think that part of his distraction. However, there is one thing that. Um, Chachibi has has un has uncovered that I think is actually very important, very hard to figure out, and is it's going to open up, I think a you know, multi decade long um, project to to figure out, and that is this issue of whether you can trust the answers or believe the answers. And that's a really, really fundamental problem that spills over to our, the general question of how we believe anybody and what we take as evidence of something being true and how we think we know things. So, so I think there's a lot wrapped in, into that, that this is sort of uncovering a little crack in the, in the dike. And um, as we try and solve this for chat gpt we're going to actually be solving bigger problems that we had that we you know haven't really tried to address yet and um so i think i'm very i'm very excited by by this kind of revealing the emperor has no clothes on um because it is a very difficult question and some of the things i've seen i mean i i just used the tonight because i we had a medical report in our family of, of from a doctor mri very hard i just fed it into I said, summarize this in plain English. And it did a remarkable job. Now, there might have been things it said wrong. I don't know. But, and so the question is, can I fully trust this? Because I have seen examples of people giving it multiplication problems that it was giving incorrect answers to. At the same time, there's other things where it does an incredibly powerful job that is very believable and very trustworthy. And how are we going to tell the difference? And so I think. I'm very excited by this because I think that this little weakness in the armor is actually something very, very profound that will require us to to make an infrastructure that that, that has the ability to kind of distinguish about what's trustworthy and what's not, what's true and what's not. Anyway, so that's my rant. No, I think that's a fantastic point. And uh, Ted Chang wrote a very thoughtful essay recently trying to explain why it makes mistakes, ChatGPT. How could right. it attribute a book 
to me that I didn't yeah. write or a job I had me right. working somewhere that I've never worked at. How could he make that kind of mistake? Right. Right. And he wrote a very interesting right. piece. We'll, we'll put a link up to it. But but I think to come back to your point about expertise or or uh, epistemology is what it really is, right? How do we know what we know? Uh, Sam Altman, who's the head of OpenAI that's that's created this, um, said, you know, he's very um, he's very apologetic that occasionally ChatGPT says things that are racist or biased or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, of course it's racist and biased. It's based it's on what human beings have been writing for the last, you know, not since right. 20. You know, I think after yeah, 2020, yeah. it stops. It's like, we didn't fix that yet. <laughs> so it's not going to get yeah. that much better when it takes in modern yeah. data. And, and so isn't the answer to this, instead of saying, well, we just have to eliminate that, isn't the answer, we have to be better consumers of what, of truth and recognize that not everything we read on the internet is true. That's a, that's a bad standard. It, the better standard is to be aware that you have to consume this thoughtfully. I mean, I'm going to come back to translation. Now, I'm living in Israel. I'm living in Hebrew a lot, trying to get improve my conversational Hebrew. I'm using Google Translate all the time. Google Translate's wonderful for many things. But of course, there are many things it can't do at all. And it's really dangerous. And if you take a sophisticated, and we, we, we deal with this all the time here at our college, we write something in English and we ask someone, let's get it translated. And then well, after it's translated, people will say, yeah, but is it is it in real Hebrew or just sort of translated Hebrew? And you start thinking about that. What does that mean? What do you mean? What is there besides translated Hebrew? The answer is because Hebrew is not English. It's not a one-to-one correspondence. Yeah. And, and right, there right, are sophisticated right. concepts and trains of logic that don't work in a foreign language unless they're right. really thoughtfully – require someone who's, who's really fluent in both. Right. And even a person fluent in both, there's certain concepts that don't – they're not quite the same, and and that's a reality. It's not like oh, we, let's get a, we have to get a better translator. That's not the answer. <laughs> the answer is you might have to say things differently. And so yeah. I think this, your point, which I love, is that the way I interpret it is this forces us to think about what is true, and it's not <laughs> oh well, we'll just have to get a better. We'll have to have a there'll be a website, and you just say is this true? Right. This MRI. Uh, right, chat right, right. GPT thing? Did they, did they get it right? The answer is, oh, well, who's going to design that? And the answer is, right. it's going to be imperfect. You don't have to live with that. So hard. So I, I, I think you're right. That, that, and this is, this is why I think it's profound, because I think it will force us to deal with, you know, how we can believe other humans and what they say. But I think there is something maybe even more profound behind what I'm trying to say, which is that Yes. So we've trained this AI on human experience and human experience is fundamentally flawed. Yeah. Right. And so, and so, we're, so we've given it the ethics of humans and we're saying, but here's the thing is that we are going to demand that the AIs be better than humans. That's what we're demanding. We're, we're saying you can't be as racist. You can't be as sexist as humans are. And that's okay. We can actually do that because the ethics and morality are just code, and we can put that code in. The challenge is we don't know what better than human looks like. Yeah. It's going to be. That's our, that's our challenge. It's like, well, what does? 
it look like to be non-racist, to be non-sexist, to be a better ethically than humans. And that's our challenge. And that's what we're going to be working on. Because if we can do it, then we can code it in. But we don't really know that. And so that's the exciting challenge of growing up is to make our AI robots better than us, because in the end, they're going to make us better humans. Well, I'd love to end there, Kevin. I have a natural impulse to end there, but I can't because <laughs> I'm reminded of this essay by David Chalmers on uh, how philosophy hasn't made, answered any of the biggest questions and how it's not a progressive in the sense of making progress discipline and it's a failure. And, and I'm thinking, no, it's not. The yeah. fact that the, that the questions of how to live, how to live, the, uh, what is a life well lived? The fact that that is not well specified is not a failure. It is the nature of the being. And the idea that we could be better humans, better, more ethical than we are, or have better ethics than humans, that, that's, that's like asking the barber who only cuts the hair of people who don't cut their own hair yeah. to figure out what he's supposed to do. How are we going to? How are we going to get outside ourselves to, to figure out what, what would be better for us? You know, I, I don't I don't see that working. Well, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to make aliens. We're going to make artificial aliens and we're going to create these other beings and they're going to help us go beyond ourselves. We can't do it by ourselves. You're, this is the, the paradox is that by ourselves, we would be unable to make it better than humans, but we can with the help of these artificial aliens that we create. That's my premise. That's my prediction. I'm sticking with it. My guest today. <laughs> that's is, why I'm excited. My guest today has been Kevin Kelly, who will be back here in about six months after he writes the essay that convinces me of that. Kevin, thanks for being part <laughs> of Econ Talk. Russ, you're just fabulous. I just enjoyed this conversation so much as usual. And uh, I appreciate your playing with me and um, inviting me on here. And thank you for your enthusiasm for the book as well. Take care. Yep. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.